Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ironworks Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And last time we had an interview with Dr. John Baumgartner, who uh, was a geologist who uh, helped us in this series we've been going through about creation, about origins, about the book of Genesis, and uh, really lending a, a bit of credibility, scientific credibility to what we've been saying. And we're very blessed to have today uh, Dr. Marcus Ross with us, who is going to continue uh, to help us with this series. Dr. Ross, it's great to have you with us today. Hey, thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. It's it's great to have you on. So why don't you just start, take a minute and uh, tell us who you are and uh, maybe how you came to know the Lord and, and what your area of expertise is. Well, thanks. Um, so I became a Christian at a rather young age. I was probably five or six when uh, I prayed to accept Christ. I didn't remember it. So I prayed that same prayer lots of times afterwards, you know, just to just to make <laughs> sure. Um, I grew up in a spiritually mixed household. My mom and dad, when they got married, were not Christians. And uh, then my mom became a born-again believer afterwards. Um, my dad remains to this day agnostic about God's existence. He believes that there is something that did make us, but he doesn't really believe that we can know who or what that is or that they know much of what's going on down here. Uh, so while my mom and myself and my sister, um, there's four of us in the family total, uh, we grew up in a Christian environment. I, you know, I also lived in a home where my dad didn't see the world the way that we did. Um, that I think would eventually come to be a, a very powerful way that God prepared me to go into an arena of science uh, where you've got lots of people that don't agree with you, but you also care about them in the same way that I care about my dad, um, that I love him and care about him, even though we disagree. Uh, we've got to be able to you know, show and display that love towards other people, regardless of you know, whether they seem to be on you know, our team or not, right? We tend to think, sadly, in, in these kinds mm -hmm. of um, tribalistic ways. And uh, I think the Lord just, you know, gave me uh, an upbringing that would allow me then to be able to be friends and work alongside people who disagreed with me um, on things. Uh, frequently, I found myself in the minority. I'm a scientist by training. My background is in geology and paleontology. So I'm a fossils and rocks guy, really, when it there comes down to it. <laughs> and I spent my entire life, K through PhD, in state-run schools. Uh, there was never a time when I went to a Christian elementary or high school. I didn't go to any Christian colleges. Um, I always was able to maintain a, a close uh, church relationship when I was in college. That was very important to me. And that was very influential in, in keeping me on the straight and narrow. Um, but, you know, when, when I'm in a geology department and working on my degree, whether it was my uh, undergraduate at Penn State or my master's in South Dakota or my PhD at the University of Rhode Island, um, I was usually the only person in the department who thought the way that I did, right? Or maybe there were a couple of other, you know, out there, but very, very few. And uh, you had to learn how to, you know, respectfully disagree uh, in places where you could. Uh, you also had to learn um, to be able to work in a system that you didn't agree with and to do so hopefully with excellence, right? If you want to get good grades, mm -hmm. you, you know, have to be able to perform in the class the way that the class expects you. And uh, not too often do you find folks who have such a, a big distinction or even disjunction between what they think and where they are, um, you know, in a program, as I did, being a young earth creationist going through secular geology and paleontology programs. Uh, but I always knew that I had to understand and know evolutionary theory probably better than any of my colleagues, because they were the first thing that anybody kind of thinks when they when you say to a scientist, oh, I'm a creationist. 
their their first kind of retort is, oh, it's because you don't understand and you don't know the data. And yes. if you just get a little learning, you know, then you're going to change your mind. And that was very much the way that my undergraduate professor kind of looked at it. Probably some of my graduate professors it wouldn't be until later on that people kind of realize, okay, the guy does know this stuff. He's getting decent grades. He seems to understand. He converses in this stuff. And yet he doesn't, you know, he doesn't think that it's correct. Um, and some people understood why, you know, they, they understood that there was a, a deep root of disagreement over whether God was real or God was not, and whether he could manifest uh, himself through his creation. Is there a way that he is knowable through the things that he has made? Um, whereas most scientists say, you know, more or less that if there is a God, science can't ask that question because science has to operate as if God's not there. Uh, that's what we call methodological naturalism. It's not a commitment. That's sort of sneaking, sneaking the conclusion in, and when you're asking the question there, isn't it? It sort of is. It's considered a pragmatic way of doing science because none of us in science think that God is probably actively stirring our test tube when we're not looking, right? So mm -hmm. there is a tendency in modern science to apply methodological naturalism because God upholds his creation through the normal rules and laws um, that he has established. You know, we don't expect gravity to not work tomorrow when it worked today. God is a God of consistency and and regularity and predictability. So, you know, one of the things that allowed modern science to become what it was, was this recognition that the Christian God, the, the Judeo-Christian mm -hmm. God, was one that could be relied upon because he wasn't part of some pantheon. Um, right. you know, you've got pantheistic, you know, deities, you never know what Zeus is going to do. And really, actually, you know what Zeus is going to do. You never know what Hera is going to do when she finds out what Zeus has done. Um, right. But it's not going to be good for you. So, you know, the Greeks almost got to science. They really almost did. But the problem for them was uh, they, they didn't have a biblical foundation. They didn't have an understanding of a singular God that runs the universe. And so the gods are capricious. They do whatever they want. Um, and so it was in, you know, the late Middle Ages into the, the Renaissance and, and the Enlightenment, uh, even though the Enlightenment was a push kind of against God, it was still running on the philosophies of Christian theism, even while it was trying to disentangle itself from it. Yes. Um, so, you know, methodological naturalism is something that I assume a lot in day-to-day -day operation science. You know, um, we, my, my job right now is we run a science supply company for Christian schools, for colleges and universities, for homeschoolers, anybody, I'm pretty mercenary, right? We'll, we'll sell stuff <laughs> to anybody. Um, if you need beakers and labware, you know, so I'm expecting that when I tell stu a student do this experiment, that it's going to operate the way that it did when I did it. And God's not going to, you know, monkey with it in some way. And so because of that, when people are thinking about historical sciences, when they're thinking about investigating events that happened in the past, their their philosophical approach to the modern is simply transported back to the past. And I understand why they do that. Uh, it's it's not an inconsistent view, but it has to be tempered with the fact that, I, at least in my view, God has told us about things that he has done. And therefore, those need to be kind of, you know, mile markers along the way to tell us the right direction to go. Right. And <laughs> There's so much already I wish I'd love to unpack, uh, and I know we would have enough time to get into all of it, but um, one of the things that's interesting is you talk about the Greeks, and if you ever read, guys, if you ever read the Iliad, for example, or the Odyssey, you know, you'll they'll, part of the story is the gods keep interfering, <laughs> and oh, they're, the Tro Trojans are about to drive the Greeks away, but oh no, somebody comes in and snatches their, their favorite away and takes him, or 
you know, the, even some of the Norse myths, like, you know, Thor got drunk and that's why this happened. And, and that led to kind of, like you said, this uh, almost science, there, the kind of this, there was this underlying belief that everything was fundamentally chaotic and couldn't really be relied upon. What's so interesting to me is that we've, in many cases, and at least many atheists, maybe of, of my own generation more so, have a similar understanding of the world that like the more we learn about science and especially not that I'm pretending to understand it. I don't think most of these folks that I've spoken to either do, but well, the world is unpredictable and we, we, the more we dig and the deeper we go, the, we don't understand it. It really shouldn't work the way it is. So that leads to a similar uh, kind of fatalism and, and Mm -hmm. uh, just belief in the ultimate chaos of the world, which is you, you wouldn't think that somebody who believes in math and science and physics as their creed, would be led to a, a universe that has no purpose. But if you've removed the the you know the idea of God from all of that, then that's about what you you end up with. So it's really that if you're going to follow any path long enough and you don't have Jesus with you, it's going to lead you to that same despair. Would you agree with that? You think that's kind of run into that stuff before? I, I think so. Um, you know, there's been a big shift from the way people looked at the world in um, the modernist period, right? If we think about the, the say, early 1900s, basically about the 20th century, consider this, you know, and, and the way that people would argue about things in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s, the apologetic approaches and the arguments between atheists and theists, it was kind of like, I'm going to stack my evidence and you're going to stack your evidence. And he with the most evidence wins because the evidence was considered independent. It was considered accessible information that was available to anybody because all you had to do was be able to observe it. Not, not that everybody could you know, look in an electron microscope or whatever, but the reports of the data would be considered accurate, um, you know, barring any evidence to the contrary. And so that modernist approach eventually was undermined first in humanities, and then eventually it's wound its way into the sciences of, of you know, a one way that we can think about that is the observations that people make are actually dependent upon theories about what they think they are capable of observing or what they might observe. So philosophers of science call this the theory ladenness of science. So in order to um, in order to have this conversation with you guys right now, with Tyler and Zach and Marcus, right, the three of us are having this conversation. We actually are trusting that the electronic equipment works in a particular way that is going to be able to communicate what I'm saying right now, not only to you guys, but eventually to the rest of the audience. And it is understandable. How do I know that is going to be the case? Well, you know, based on past experience, that seems to be uh, helpful, but that's what's called an inductive argument. You know, events, yeah. I'm going to pile them up, but I can't ever get to a universal truth out of just a series of past events because there can always be something that doesn't operate that way. Um, the philosophers had an, an old um, argument, you know, how do you prove that all crows are black? Well, you can go out and you can observe all the crows and all the crows are black, but what about crows that you didn't get to observe? Oh, we looked at all of the crows in the universe. What about the ones in the past, right? Was there, how could you ever prove a universal statement based on a limited number of observations? And so that's what we call in philosophy of science, the problem of induction. And this also then connects into this theory ladenness, the fact that in order for me to say, um, hit my rock against a hammer and take a look at the rock with my hand lens and you know magnify it and look at it, I still have to be thinking about things that I think I'm gonna see there, right? I'm not gonna see things 
that are completely outside of my expectations. Um, I'm not going to be able to see see things that are outside of my visual capability, right? There, so when philosophers of science started bringing this in, most scientists are like, ah, whatever. Yeah, theory ladenness of science, no big deal. The reality is that the re that reality is out there. But the argument just kept chip chipping away at that because your ability to make the argument that reality is a fundamental thing that we can observe is dependent on those theories about what reality is. Now, in the end, I don't think that the problem of, of this kind of postmodern deconstruction of science gets us very far, but it does get us to that nihilism and that fatalism, Tyler, that you were mentioning, where people say, oh, you know, the more that we look, the more we don't know. And that's in part because this philosophy does nothing but bring up doubt. Right. And we end up kind of swimming in this pool of doubt and say, okay, well, we were in these things, but we really don't know all this other stuff. And it's very intellectually, it's very easy to just say, I don't know. And nobody can. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> how do we get to a society as complex and as technologically and scientifically advanced as we have with that kind of attitude? It's not going to happen. It's only going to take those that are going to say, no, reality is real. And the way that that is best anchored is recognizing truth and scripture of God as a creator, creating us in his own image with the intention that we then manage and steward the world, right? So this brings us right back into Genesis 1 and 2 as to a justification for why we have reliability for our senses, why we have a reliability in the world's operation. Uh, we see this also after the flood when God says to Noah that day and night and the seasons won't, you know, won't cease to exist. Mm -hmm. He's promising that nature is going to continue on in a predictable fashion, not without catastrophes, not without bad things, but you know, until God wills the world to end, the world will continue and it will be con it will continue in a way that is understandable and accessible to us because God wants us to manage it. And you can't manage something that you don't understand and cannot understand. So the Greeks came so close, but that underlying um, polytheism just kept throwing wrenches into the system of like, hey, yep. I think I understand exactly how that goes. And yeah, but you know, on the other hand, Poseidon can just chuck a tsunami at us right. and for no reason whatsoever. So tsunamis don't have reasons except for the gods. Um, and now we go, no, no, because there's only one God and maybe he sent a tsunami for some reason, but he also sent it through a secondary mean, right? He, a, a proximal mean to us as far as plate tectonics and earthquakes and things like that. So I think the Bible provides us with a strong justification about why it is that we can, in fact, understand this world. Yeah. And for those of you that are listening and, and thinking some of that sounds kind of familiar, uh, you, you've seen probably a lot of that same uh, line of argument he was running through a minute ago uh, in the political realm uh, related mm -hmm. to, well, how can you know anything about my life because you're not living in my life? It's Because it, it all comes from the same fountain, you guys, all, that that postmodernism is, is in everything. And even things that I think Kind of like you said, most people just kind of brushed it off because they thought, come on, guys, it's science. I mean, you know, we can go outside, we can measure it. But, you know, if you're going to question even the validity of measurement itself, then you're in trouble. So, uh, all right. So PhD, geology, paleontology, Penn State, South Dakota, University of Rhode Island. Uh, if I were to look up creationism online, it wouldn't be long until I found the word pseudoscience in mm. there. Yeah. But uh you know, what you just described to me doesn't exactly sound like uh, somebody who's just coming up with theories in their basement. Uh, so wh why, I mean, we kind of, I think we sort of know the answer, but why is it that when we start talking about creationism, start talking about, 
uh, Young Earth or or any of that. Why is it that these credentials that you have that otherwise would be not questioned, like oh somebody from uh, you know Penn State or has a PhD in geology, that's who you need to talk to. But then you start talking about the Bible. Now, all of a sudden, that doesn't matter. What? Why do you think that is? Well, I've heard a lot of reasons uh, over the course <laughs> of the years from different people. I've, I've been blessed to interact. Uh, well, I'll say blessed in broad category. Blessed uh, sometimes immediately and sometimes later on in, in life experience. Um, you know, to talk with a lot of folks that have different perspectives on this, that, that don't have my perspective and come at, you know, what I think from different ways. So I'll give you an example of somebody um, who I think interacts really well with me on these types of issues, even though he would say, yeah, young earth creationism is a pseudoscience. This was my PhD advisor, Dr. David Fistovsky. Um, if you looked up a textbook on dinosaurs, his would be one of the first. He has been teaching about dinosaurs um, longer than any person on the planet, I think. Um, he started teaching a dinosaurs course at Berkeley when he was still a, a master's degree student. And he pretty much continuously taught a dinosaurs class all the way through to you know today. Um, and so he's he's co-author on a, on a major textbook. And I worked with him for my PhD because I liked some of the research that he had done on dinosaur extinction and wanted to connect that with things that I was interested in. And um, David Fistovsky is an agnostic Jewish evolutionist. So he's Jewish by heritage, uh, but he doesn't really think that God's very likely to exist. Um, and so we start from very different locations, right? He's an agnostic Jewish evolutionist, and I am a theistic Gentile, you know, young earth creationist. <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty distant ends of the spectrum. But Fistovsky was that one who was able to recognize that our philosophical separation point was first on the question of God's existence. And because he said probably not, he knew that there were going to be a, a particular trajectory where his ideas would end up going. And you could be an evolutionist of a lot of different stripes and colors. There's, there's a huge variety of perspectives within evolutionary theory. But he's going to be on that trajectory because if God doesn't make the world, then the world has got to make itself in some process. Because I said yes to theism, I've got a bunch of options as well. And because I believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, uh, it also means that I'm going to be trending towards, say, you know, a creationist perspective. Could be old earth creationist or young earth creationist. Different people have different perspectives on this, but I think the most consistent approach to the biblical text is a young earth creation one. So he and I both knew that we were starting from different, you know, different vectors from the same point, going off in different directions. And because he was satisfied with his approach to the world, he didn't feel threatened by me when I came uh, to work with him. First, because I was going to do the work the way that he wanted it to be done. But even on the, you know, on the side time when we'd chat, we could talk about creation and evolution issues. And he wasn't worried because he was, you know, he was secure in himself. On the other hand, I ran into other folks um, when I was a master's student in South Dakota who didn't recognize that because I said God exists and can work in the world, that my approach to science might be different than their approach of methodological naturalism. So they kind of looked at it like, well, you're a scientist, you do science, that means you're methodological naturalism, but then you end up saying God did things and the earth is young. So you either are seriously confused about things, right? So you try to fix the confusion with education. And then when they realized like it wasn't an education problem, they jumped to the, well, you're lying for Jesus then, right? You've got to have Christianity 
that's so important to you that you will twist and turn the evidence in any direction you want in order to get the answer. So you know better, you won't do it. So you must be evil. Um, like, well, that's a very uncharitable way of, of addressing things. And uh, because of that, uh, I had a, a fight for my life getting my master's degree. I was um, threatened with being thrown out of the school um, for stuff that happened outside of, of classes, but uh, trickled into uh, punishment inside the classes. It was a really dark time. Uh, but it was also a wonderful time of seeing my local church come around and support me and help me um, at a time when things were really, really bad. I might have to get you on sometime just to talk about that because I and that is such a common experience for so many people, uh, even just getting going on and getting their undergrad of just being bombarded and and even threatened with you know the loss of credential and and credit and and thing. But um, yeah, but yeah. Well, thank you. you. Yeah, that go would, ahead. That would be a, continue, that would be a great yeah. one to talk about. Um, yeah, I, I give a. I give a talk sometimes at uh, different conferences called 12 Years in Athens, where I talk about what it's like to have been a young earth creationist going through secular geology programs and, and go through what happened to me in South Dakota. Um, but, you know, it, in the end, it it was uh, formative. It was very, very formative. And God wouldn't let me leave until I found my wife. So, you know, in the end, that was good. Way better than the degree. So, yeah, that's worth uh, it. Worked it out. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I've, I've got the range of spectrum from people who think that I'm obviously and and irredeemably evil because I come to these different conclusions despite my good training. And other people who recognize, no, you're following a different methodology of science, one that incorporates biblical information as part of the evidence itself and could even be considered something that um, trumps what seems to be very strong evidence in an opposite direction from the science. Um, I want to be able to remain flexible both in my understanding of Genesis, because I could be wrong. I want to be flexible in my understanding of science, because I certainly know I can be wrong there as well. And, you know, all of us are trying to put together in some way, a coherent view of the world around us. And most other scientists consider creationism to be pseudoscience because that interaction with the biblical text into science is something that they consider to be out of the bounds of what science does. Um, now, it's interesting that they do that because when you look at the history of science, that hasn't always been the case. And in fact, was really not at all the case in the founding of science itself. Whether you're looking at Kepler or Newton, whether you're looking at some of the early geologists like Nico Steno uh, and others that you know I, I might talk about in my college classes when I used to teach, you know, there are people who wrote scientific um, works, right? Newton's Principia. If you took the theology out of Newton's Principia, you would have a depauperate book. Theology is woven into Principia. Uh, and so, you know, is that not a science book? Well, of course it is. It's Principia. It, it's like <laughs> the first right. real science book. Um, optics. Uh, you get Kepler's on the revolutions of the planet. Uh, sorry, that was Galileo on the revolution of the planets, um, in which he had to deal with theistic questions. So the idea that we can divorce uh, or that we have to divorce science from uh, theology, from Bible or even other religions um, is, is a modernist situation, right? It's something that developed, especially in the 1800s. And by the time we get to the 1900s, it's well cemented. You don't bring God into science, but it didn't start that way. Um, and we can't look historically and say that there's a reason for methodological naturalism because methodological naturalism somehow gives you better science. 
um, be hard pressed to stack up anything against Principia uh, and say that uh, th this just doesn't, you know, look as good as what we know now. Well, yeah, you know, we've got better instrumentation, but it's because, you know, Newton gave us the platform to stand on. Right. There, there's a, I love to share this quote and uh, it's, it's a little silly because of who said it, but uh, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula has hmm. a, a line in that book, um, which is, this is one of the themes that he works into it. But I, when I read this, I remember thinking that's, that's profound. He said, uh, the problem with our science, and he wrote this in like the 1800s. So the problem with our science is that it thinks it can explain everything. And if it finds something that it cannot explain, it concludes that there's nothing to explain. Mm. Like it, it uses the parameters of science to define reality, that it's no longer a tool that's used to evaluate what's there, but it, it, uh, it's a determinant of, well, if we can't, you know, God can't be real because we can't scientifically prove God. That should just tell us that there's separate categories uh, for us to examine. Not that we, I, I believe as you do, obviously, that the Lord has revealed himself in ways that we can see. And when God works, we're able to see you know, his, his fingerprints, so to speak. But uh, it's, it's good for, for us to remember this y'all that uh, you, you can be made to feel that it's only uh, kooks and crazies and nobody who has any real training that believes these things. And uh, I want to, the next thing we're going to do is I want to get into some of the specific um, arguments that we have and the reasons we have for belief that, um, but uh, the last thing I want to say prior to that, and I'm, I'm really, I really like these uh, philosophical kind of dis discussions here, but um, you, you look today most, in, at least in recent years, it seems, and we said in our first podcast, it feels like there's been a shift. Most apologetics for the existence of God now for Christianity likes to start almost by making the skeptic feel at ease by saying, now, look, guys, I'm an evolutionist. I believe in all this. I'm not going to try to make you think that God made the world in six days. Let's just talk about some of this other stuff. Um, I see that as... as uh, concerning. I'm not questioning these people's salvation or anything, but um, I think that when you when you concede something like that, you're already planting that seed. That yeah, we're going to tell you to believe this book, but right off the bat, you don't have to you don't have to believe all of it. And if you don't, you know, what? Why is that? Have you noticed that similar change in apologetics? And uh, how do you account for that? What do you what do you think about that approach? That's, that's a really good question, Tyler. Thanks. Um, I think. That's how to think about this. So when I think about apologetics, uh, even though I've been in creation evolution issues now for, you know, 25 uh, plus years, um, almost 30, uh, actually, um, I never considered myself much of an apologist uh, because there seems to be like, you know, the special class of, of people who go and, you know, get a degree in philosophy or whatever, and, and they do apologetic stuff. And I didn't, you know, I was focused almost entirely on creation evolution issues I didn't do things like, okay, we're going to work through the various proofs for the existence of God or, you know, handle the, the problem of suffering and evil. I mean, I, in creationism, we handle that a, a bit, but not quite the same way that apologist does. I think that when we take a look at some of the most popular uh, apologists who've been out there, uh, I think, for example, of William Lane Craig. Um, right. William Lane Craig is, you know, one of the greatest apologists for the Christian faith of, of the 20th and 21st centuries. I mean, this guy has stood up and defended the uh, the existence of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in more venues than most of us, you know, could even visit on, on vacations for the rest of our lives. Yes, he has. And, but one thing about Bill Craig is that he has always posited 
uh, the standard scientific explanation for the Big Bang of the universe, for example, right? He's going to say mm-hmm. uh, he, he thinks the Big Bang is correct. And so that's not a point of friction when he enters a debate with another science, with a scientist or another philosopher or whatever. I'm going to start with the, you know, with God's existence and we can reason even from the Big Bang back to that. You know, is this the type of, of event that God could do uh, that requires, uh, the universe requires a being like God? Um, and more more recently, as he's delved into issues of Adam, uh, back in uh, 2021, right. he had a book called In Quest for the Historical Adam. Likewise, Craig never challenges the standard um, evolutionary you know, series of events. Um, he wants there to be a singular historical Adam in the past. He's going to consider Genesis to be a mythological or what he calls mytho-historical text, but he thinks the New Testament compels us to a, a real Adam based on basically, you know, three passages at most. Yeah. And, uh, but, but his approach, again, has always been to seed the, the field on the science. And I think that a lot of people in emulating Craig end up doing the same thing because Craig's been so successful at what he does that, you know, it, it develops a kind of a cottage industry of people who do the same type of thing. Right. I've seen uh, John Lennox, for example, JP Moreland, mm-hmm. um, some of those other guys that they kind of, it's, I can see the strategy behind it in one sense, because you try to talk about God. The first thing anybody wants to bring up is like, well, you're not one of those crazies that believe that the earth is, is, is 6,000 years old. Are you? And if you can, bypass that to have a deeper conversation there's something to be said for that but uh i've you know i i have found that a lot of these theologians will even do this or or bible teachers say, let's just not talk about it. let's talk about jesus and but as i as i what i think you start to see implied in that is they're kind of saying all right guys we lost this one we thought, you know, creation science was going to go somewhere. Now it's just kind of embarrassing. And the, you know, the Ark encounter, just people make fun of us for it. So right. we're just, you know, we're not, we're not like those guys. And, uh, and when I talk to someone like you or Dr. Baumgartner from last week, it's like, I feel like uh, some of you guys in your ministries are getting hung out to dry because you're over here doing the hard work and there are fine answers to these questions. But um, I, I, so I, I don't like seeing it just being, like you said, seeding the ground scientifically. Mm-hmm. I think that's dangerous. Yeah, um, I, I think I think that it is. I think we leave a lot, you know, on the table when we do that, and we end up, you know, going, you know, to this little tiny table and trying to defend that when we actually have a, a much larger amount of of um, I don't want to say arsenal, but you know, arguments and, and whatnot that we could pull from. Um, it is tempting to look at young earth creationism and go, okay, well, you know, you've got a couple of large ministries and especially answers in Genesis as, as the largest apologetics ministry in the world. Um, and, you know, they've got their creation museum, which is outstanding. Uh, the Ark encounter is, I haven't been there, but I've, I've seen pictures and talked to people. It's very, very nice. It's impressive. Um, it is. <laughs> it's very impressive, but I also don't see answers in Genesis, you know, getting out there and, you know, doing a lot of debates and discussions and whatnot. Um, their tendency to, to say, not only are you wrong, but your mother's ugly, uh, tends to, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, tends to make people a little reticent. And so uh, over the past, oh, I don't know, five or six years, I've been drawn a little bit more into the theological community. Um, my sister teaches old Testament studies and, uh, biblical languages at Liberty university. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so she's got, you know, she's got all these people that she knows and she's like, Marcus, I need you to talk to them. You've got science. They don't, they need to hear from someone like you. 
And um, within young earth creationism, unfortunately, we've, we've had a tendency to treat our opponents poorly um, in print or on websites and things like that. And unfortunately, what that means is you don't get asked to the dance, right? Uh, when, when there's a, an right. opportunity for a book that's going to have multiple authors in it, that's going to be like a debate, um, you just don't get asked to do these things because people know what you're going to do. Uh, you're you're going to kind of, you know, pee in the pool. And we got to stop. We got to stop doing that sort of thing. Um, and so when I talk about, um, you know, when I talk to somebody or when I'm talking to an audience, especially a friendly audience that might be filled with, with people who are open to young earth creationism, I'll talk about my evolutionary colleagues because they are right. I'm a geologist. I'm a paleontologist. I go to the, you know, geology, I go to the egghead meetings and meet the other people there. And I consider them peers and colleagues. And most of them are better than I am at what, at what we do. I, I don't do a whole lot of research and writing uh, for uh, for standard geology and, and whatnot. I do a little bit here and there, but not very much. I've been pretty quiet. They're really good at what they do. I'm I'm impressed by it. I appreciate their scholarship, even if I disagree with some of the ways that they interpret the data or the conclusions that they draw. Still, you know, going back to the data, like they're they're discovering data, and I have no reason to think that their data are are bad. Um, but in young earth creationism, as well as also with some old earth creationist and intelligent design folks, there's a tendency to just disparage people. And when you do that, you know, you don't make friends. And um, my goal is ultimately to be able to present God to the world, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to hopefully present a, a robust and holistic perspective of the world to people. Uh, but if I'm going to get an, an audience for that, it means that I got to be nice to people, right? You know, there'll be some people where you have to, you know, knock the dust off of your feet and walk away. But those people are fairly rare. And most of the people that I want to talk to don't like them either. Um, because they're like that with everybody. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think what what the kind of thing you do, at least in my experience, has been um, I'm not gonna be able to maybe convince somebody of everything related to creation, etc. But if I can give them enough to get them over that initial hump to now we can have a heart conversation, uh, mm-hmm. which is where conversion happens and where the Holy Spirit does his work, then, then that's that's the ultimate uh, goal of that. And there's, again, there's so much that I, I want to touch on here, but um, before we get into some of these specific um, uh, arguments and, and evidences that you've already alluded to, some, Zach, you've been kind of quiet. You got anything you want to chime in on in this uh, early part of the conversation? Yeah, just the one thing, actually, because you were mentioning talking like the almost like the crossing over this barrier that sometimes gets set up between the scientific community that works on some of these things. And then I guess what we'd call like the, the theological community or even like the pastors and the teachers who are, we're kind of like at the other end, we're, we're talking to people who are sending their kids off to college and they're asking questions, you know, theological questions, apologetics questions. And what I see a lot of time, and I wonder if you see this too, is there's a tendency, I think, pastorally to do some of the same stuff that you see in the apologetics world is to just kind of shrug and say, look, like it's hard enough for me to convince people that they should govern their lives according to scripture in the 21st century. Why, why isn't it divisive? And isn't it just, it just makes for fights and it just gets nasty for me to start bringing up this stuff about Genesis. And I really rarely, and I'm not trying to set us, you know, Tyler or myself or even Calvary Chapel guys or whatever on a pedestal, but I just think it's true that you just rarely see pastors really digging in on this stuff and saying, no, I'm justified in sticking with the biblical narrative here. And here's why 
do you what would you say to a pastor who's maybe even listening to us and he just kind of feels like this whole thing is just not important i'd prefer to just teach the gospel and leave this out of the conversation that's a great question zachary and i, I think you're spot on that you know th this this issue within the church has certainly been contentious over the past a lot of fights between young earth creationists and old earth creationists and people calling each other heretics and like come on guys yeah heresy that's a bad word don't use that yeah, that's, uh, that's one of our uh, our bugs on this podcast like when you say heresy you mean go to going to hell so you need to be careful when you, when you <laughs> use that word <laughs> yes you are preaching a strange gospel okay right, right um old earth creationism is not a heresy um by any stretch of the imagination a theistic evolutionist is not a heretic um and you know they they may they may be a heretic but it's not for those reasons right <laughs> they hold on to something else <laughs> sure. that's weird <laughs> right so um yeah we we, we get very, very passionate about arguments that we care a lot about. And I certainly care a whole lot about creation mm. issues. So to the pastors that might be listening to this and saying, you know, should, should I really, you know, pay attention to this? Um, I would say that, you know, one thing that you'll hear is, okay, creation issues, young earth or, or whatever, it's not a gospel issue. Mm. And I agree. Yes, it's not, it's not the gospel issue. Let me put it that way. It's not the gospel issue. The gospel stands and falls on the death, burial, and resurrection of, of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect atonement for us. There you have that, right? That is the gospel issue. But related to that is the question of why did Jesus have to come in the first place? Uh -huh. And what are the conditions that were set forth that required the sacrifice of the second person of the Trinity for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of the entire world. How is it that the world itself requires salvation? And I think that the answer to that, of, as to the why the gospel needs to exist, comes straight back to the very first book of the Bible. It comes very right. to the first few chapters. We find that God creates a world that he declares good six times, and then on the seventh time declares it very good. Right. That's that's a nice little theological nugget to remember. Okay, in the end, when mm -hmm. he says it's very good, yeah, okay, things are really, really good. And there seems to be a, a way in which we look at the world and it, it seems to be harmonious. Uh, not only does God tell the human beings that they're going to be eating, you know, plants, for example, it also promises the same thing to the animals, to the beasts of the field, to the birds of the air, to the things that creep on the ground. I give you every green plant for food. Uh, on the sixth day, that's what's there. So it seems that at the end of the sixth day, as God declares everything very good, that we have a harmonious world that doesn't involve things like predatory behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, we have plenty of predators right now. Uh, just this week, mm -hmm. I watched a shark, you know, shark week video right. with my kid. And <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love that stuff, a except for it pains me when I think, okay, but this is an evidence of a broken creation. Mm -hmm. How, how did we get broken? Well, right, we find that out in Genesis chapter three. We find out two about God creating Adam and eventually creating Eve. In three, we find out why the world itself is broken, that because God's image bearers, whose job it is to rule and subdue and to have dominion over this creation, again, the whole reason why science and everything else can work, agriculture, you name it, the whole reason why we can do anything is we're made in God's image and placed over creation as if we are the managers of the store, mm -hmm. right? God's the owner, we're the managers. And then the managers mess up and the store goes under, basically. Jesus is what happens when the owner comes back and shows you how to run the store properly. 
right? Jesus as the very image of God, mm-hmm. very image of the Father, right? That terminology is is there and it's important and it's reflective of Adam right. and how we were made in the image of God. And yet Adam and Eve fell. And the consequences of the manager's fall ripple out into the rest of creation. So Jesus comes to redeem not only all of us, but everything over which we have dominion, right? And that's why we have a new heavens, a new earth, a new world to look forward to. So all these aspects that are tied up in the gospel of why there is sin, of why we need redemption, of how Jesus can uh, affect that in ways that we cannot and never will be able to do for ourselves, and the ultimate restoration of a world that we all recognize, as, he, as um, Hebrew says, is groaning, uh, sorry, uh, Roman says, is groaning and travailing like a woman in childbirth. That's a great passage because what is the only place that is talking about a broken creation and a woman who will have children? Oh, wait, we're right back in Genesis chapter three. Yeah. It's not a quote, it's an illusion, but the mind of anybody reading Romans who knows the, the Hebrew Old Testament is going, well, of course, right? You're expected Jesus to think about it when you read that. That's right. And, and it's one of the interesting things that I see when uh, I've been involved now in some discussions and uh, writing book chapters with other people, uh, Bill, Bill Craig being one of them, um, on Adam's historicity and the question of, of whether Adam was a real individual or not, is that a lot of the apologists who are trying to say things about Adam's historicity uh, or will say the, the earth can be old because Romans 5 is only talking about death that was brought into people, for example, right? Through one man, death entered the world. Uh, sin entered the world and death through mm. sin. And they'll say, listen, that's only about people. It's not about the rest of the world. So the death of animals is not in view in Romans chapter five. And because young earth creations were a little too quick, I think to say, look, sin came into the world and death through sin. This is where we got all the death in the world. I think that that's right. And that we get that more from Romans eight. So we get a little bit that's pegging us for people in Romans five. But if you keep reading through and you don't just stop there and yeah, say, well, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, it's all creation that groans. And it was subjected by him who subjected it, right? So when was the one time in which creation was subjected to some kind of frustration? Well, that's the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Uh, it's really amazing when you read Genesis chapter 3. We talk about the curse. The curse is never on Adam. And the curse is never on Eve. God never curses them because the word use in Hebrew there is like the bad curse, the curse that you never get out of. Instead, the ground is cursed and the serpent is cursed. Adam and Eve are now going to live in a cursed world, but they haven't been cursed by God because he promises, right? In the future, there will be a seed that will rise up that will crush the head of the serpent. Yeah, I, you know, you already went ahead and did your my transition for me, but like Zach, you know, we're asking your question about well, what's not a gospel issue? It's like, yeah, but the entire foundation of the gospel is laid down through right. the Adam story and through Genesis. And what I've, uh, I, I want to talk now a bit about the historical Adam here as a, um, uh, and the biblical Adam as a, as a subject now. But what I, I've, I've seen um, ranging from mild to just kind of surprising is those that say, yeah, okay, Romans is making theological points. And even if Paul is referring back to uh, Genesis, right, I think it's obvious because where else is are, are we supposed to be drawing these illusions from? I, you know, that's 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 a, the obvious answer. Is they'll say, well, but as long as we get the theological lesson out of Genesis, who cares uh, if it's true or not? And then they'll start to posit these entirely new uh, 
myths and fables of how uh, sin might have come about. I think of uh, as as a mild example, C.S. Lewis does this in Mere Christianity. He's like, well, yeah, at some point God decided that this yeah. evolved creature is now man, and uh, then maybe that's what happened. I don't know. And it's it's funny to me that even if you think that uh, this is just a fable, it, at the very least, it's the one God gave you, and He builds theology off of it. Mm-hmm. You you ought to take it a little more seriously, not just come up with your own. So. Uh, you said you you submitted a chapter for a book uh, alongside um, Bill Craig, William Lane Craig. For those of you that are listening, tell us a little bit about that. What what is the uh, the argument that you take, and and what is the discussion surrounding this subject of Adam? Um, well, I, you know, it was really it was pretty trippy. Uh, I had uh, just told my dean at Liberty University uh, that I was going to be stepping down uh, after teaching there for sixteen years. Uh, my wife and I run a science supply company, and we kind of decided, okay. If I want to continue working in creation issues, I need just one job rather than two that we were doing. So, you know, I just told my dean that um, I was going to step down at the end of the year. Can I can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah, I yeah. want to ask you a question because I, we both went to Liberty. Uh, I got my seminary degree from there. Gotcha. Uh, are they? Is their creation studies program still going strong over there? Are they still doing well on that? Uh, yes and no. So. Um, as, as you might remember, creation studies was required of all students, yep. um, whether they wanted it or not. Um, and, and I was one of the professors for that. I taught uh, the creation studies class uh, right out the gate as soon as I came to the school in 2005, taught all the way through to 2021. Um, in 2016, there was an accreditation visit. And when the accreditors looked at the degree plans between the online classes and the residential classes, they saw that there were some big discrepancies about what was required of the students. So like for an undergraduate going to Liberty's university residentially, you know, they had like 30 credits of Bible, creation studies, philosophy, you know, all these gen eds uh, and and kind of basically like a Bible minor about. Mm -hmm. Online, however, when they started the online program in 2006, they had a massively stripped down version of that. And you only had to take like nine credits of Bible, no creation studies. Like, so it was like 30 credits versus like mm, 12 or 15. So when the accreditors came back, they looked at these degree plans and said, these don't match. You just, you got to make them look a lot closer. And unfortunately, uh, philosophy 201 was cut from the residential program. Creation studies was cut. Number of Bible classes were dropped down online. They were brought up a little bit. So it ended up being about 18 credits now. That's sim- you know mm-hmm. the same thing. So creation studies, we still have a center for creation studies. I helmed it during the, the difficult transition period as it came off of all of these students' um, degree plans. So when I, when I became director, I was teaching three classes of creation studies at 800 students in the fall semester. You know, and that, that was pretty typical. But because of the degree plan change, it you know started going down every semester after that until I was at one session, one section with 40 students. And thankfully I'd made some changes to the, to the class. It was still required by our um, School of Health Sciences, um, our global studies, so our missions program requires it. And in computer, computer science, they still wanted it. So they kept it, but everybody else dropped it. So that, that was difficult. Um, but I still had plenty of support from the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, Dr. Roger Schultz and um, Associate Dean, Dr. Kerry Roberts. They were huge help. It's still required for um, online um, online theology degree. So it's still there. And in fact, it's trending back up. And Dr. Tim Brophy is the director now. He's uh, one of the biology professors. He's outstanding. He's got students involved in research. Uh, we just met up at the uh, International Conference on Creationism 
a I couple think he might have been my biology professor. Probably, uh, yeah. As well, is yeah. he the one that studies salamanders? Um, he he did study salamanders and turtles. Then that's the um, that's that was my well. whole bio professor. Yeah, he was. Oh great. yeah, yeah, Doctor B. <laughs> I think uh, I had Dr. Hartman was my uh, creation studies professor, Dr. Harvey oh, Hartman. You had Harvey Hartman? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Got. Oh, uh, he would have been uh, your Genesis uh, professor. That, that, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So not creation, was, but Genesis. Yeah. yeah. He, he took so. that. Um, you okay. might have had, uh, you might have had Dr. David DeWitt or Terry Spawn um, or myself mm. or Dr. Doug Oliver, depending on when you were there. Yeah. Um, or you might have just bailed and taken it online. A lot of students did. That, so. I, I did take a lot of online classes. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I lived in Lynchburg, so I had a life. So I did a lot of it online. Exactly. But, um, exactly. Okay. So, so I, yeah. So the I good news I don't want to go too far off of it. Sure, but I sure. No, the good news that, is so. that uh, Liberty University still does have a Center for Creation Studies. It's actually more active now uh, in terms of research and uh, working with students than it ever has been in the past. Um, but it also is serving a lot fewer students than it used to, which... You know, makes me pretty sad. Uh, but I was really glad to see the board preserve it during what was a pretty difficult time over the, the past, you know, five, six years. But now it, uh, do, under Dr. Brophy, it is, uh, it's moving along and doing very well. It's growing and uh, he's doing a lot of interesting stuff. We have, I'm, I'm a fellow of the center. So the center branched out and included fellows from different parts of the university. So we now got good connections with the School of Divinity, School of Engineering, the med school, um, arts and sciences, biology. So I think we're in a, a really nice, strong position. And Liberty has always been strong on creation issues, whether we have a Center for Creation Studies or not. Um, Liberty has, as part of its faith statement, uh, that God created the world in six days, as we know them, uh, that Adam and Eve were real historical people, and that their sin brought in the, the death that required the um, the work of Jesus Christ to overcome. So yeah. I'm, I'm really happy, you know, for that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's still going strong. I, I thought it was, but you know, you are well, not there. You can start to worry because so many great schools have uh, gone away from not just that issue, but all, all sorts of issues. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, getting back to uh, the, the historical Adam. So you said you were stepping away from that. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, we had prayed about the decision to, uh, to step down from Liberty and, you know, talk to my, my Dean at the beginning of January and, and almost as a great vote of confidence from God that yes, you're doing this for the right reasons. You want to be able to be more engaged. I'm going to give you a project. And so I see this email from William Lane Craig pop up on my on my computer screen. And I <laughs> I met William Lane Craig once when I was like 21, you know, or something like that. I, you know, I don't know him literally from Adam, right? And so I get this email and I'm like, oh, you know, click. Let's see what let's see. I what thought this it was is. a spam email. What's the That's right, car yeah. insurance Who's, or something? Yeah, that's exactly who who's you know who is somehow you know co-opted William Wayne Craig's email address. Um, but he was inviting me to participate in a multi-views book uh by Broadman and Holman. They have uh, what's called their perspectives series. So you know mm-hmm. it's it's basically a debate in a book. And uh, the target target audience are you know, you guys, it's pastors, people doing their MDiv. It's it's that book that goes on the shelf. Okay, I want to hear from the different perspectives that are out there in Christendom. Here's here's the debate, and you know what's interesting about this is that um, we got four authors, three of whom are different varieties of theistic evolution, and one young Earth creationist. Missing from all of this is kind of that typical old Earth creation perspective, usually represented by Hugh Ross and Reasons to Believe, kind of the old Earth, um, but Adam's real perspective, mm-hmm. and. Basically, I think it's mostly because academically, even if not societal yet, but academically, that position has withered on the vine. There, there are very, very few 
uh, mm. theologians, uh, no people in Old Testament who think that uh, that particular approach uh, to things works. You know, some of them are old earth creationists, but they don't think that, say, the reasons to believe approach uh, works. So in this book, you've got Bill uh, William Lane Craig, and, and he wants more discussion on the book that he just published, right? So he just gets his, his other book yeah. out. He's like, hey, and now we can now we can have a debate book, keep this whole thing rolling. He invites uh, Kenton Sparks, who uh, is a non-inerrantist. So Christian, but doesn't believe that the Bible is inspired or inerrant. He thinks that it's quite errant. Uh, and that, um, sure, everybody thought that Adam was real. Everybody thought that the, the Bible was talking about a six-day creation a few thousand years ago. And we now know that they're wrong. So we just need to adapt uh, to that reality, but Jesus is still Lord. He's still the son of God. He still paid the penalty for our sins. Um, so you've got that perspective. Then you have Bill Craig saying, Adam could be real. Um, but we have to put him about three quarters of a million years ago in the past, uh, as a member of what's called homo heidelbergensis. That's a fossil group. It's very similar to Neanderthals, but deeper in the past. You have another, um, philosopher by the name of Andrew Loke, and uh, he lives out in Hong Kong, and he's writing a perspective that maybe Adam could be a real person who's our genealogical ancestor, but not necessarily our um, sole genetic ancestor. Uh, the way that would work is that Adam is just one of our many great, 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 great grandparents. And um, through interconnectedness of his line with the rest of humanity, by the time of Jesus, all of us are connected in Adam. So he and Joshua Swamidas are the two, two main proponents of this view, basically trying to say that by the time we've got Romans saying that, and first Corinthians saying that we're all in Christ, we're all in Adam. Well, in order to make that work, maybe we've got to have some sort of genealogical Adam and maybe they were real and they got kicked out of the garden. Um, but there were lots of people outside the garden. There was a whole group of people that God had created and they may or may not be technically human or theologically human. They're certainly the same species as us. So this is a really odd view where you've got people who look exactly like you and I, who behave in ways that are indistinguishable from us, that are not made in the image of God versus those that are. And until Adam's genealogy has spread into the entire world, you have these parallel tracks of people who are made in the image of God and people who aren't. I kind of had to, to breed it into humanity. Yes. The image. That's, that's kind of what I'm talking odd. about with what I'm saying. Like you, the, the, the word gives you a story and in order to accommodate something else, you, you, you end up coming up with something that is, you know, j even stranger than the, <laughs> the yeah. one the word gives us. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, people look at me and say, how can you be a young earth creationist? You know, like, how can you hold to this view? This, this view is really bizarre. Right. Um, but so, so what were your, uh, your arguments on that? How did, what, what was your, uh, defense? Uh, yeah. So it had a lot of ground to cover because given the, the perspective of young earth creationism by most scholars as being, you know, kind of subpar, um, it meant that I was going to have to, you know, write, uh, an essay that was going to be very tight, very potent. It was going to have to cover a lot of different topics, um, quickly, but, but even still at, at some deep level. So um, we had to cover theological issues uh, of why do we think uh, the Bible does or doesn't require us to hold to a historical Adam. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in uh, Genesis 1 through 3, spent a lot of time in Romans, a little bit of time in Acts and uh, 1 Corinthians, those are the, the main passages. 
But I also spent a little bit of time um, at the end of that section dealing with Noah's flood, because one of the things that you have to understand about the flood narrative is that it is the recreation of the world and follows the same patterns that are established in Genesis 1 through 5. Nice. Um, it, it is everything starts over again. Um, and even when you read Genesis chapter eight, if you if you open your bi two Bibles at the same time, read Genesis one and read Genesis eight in parallel, and you're going to find that Genesis eight is following the the pattern set in Genesis one for the re-emergence of the world. You get right. the um, you know the rain is shut off, which separates the waters. The Spirit yeah. of God, well, actually in this case, uh, the Spirit of God in Genesis one is over the waters, and in Genesis eight you get uh, the wind. God sends a wind. It's the same Hebrew word, ruach. So we have a ruach of God and a ruach from God um, that are over the waters. And that's your first clue. If you're reading in Hebrew, you pick this up yes. really quickly. And I don't, <laughs> but my <laughs> sister does. So that's helpful. Um, that's your first clue that we are recapitulating the creation account. And the separation of the waters by shutting off the, the rain uh, the emergence of the land mirrors Genesis day three, you know, all these sorts of things happen until eventually Noah and his family emerge. And then God speaks to them and gives them promises and statements that are very reminiscent of what you see in Genesis one and Genesis mm. two and in Genesis three. And you get other interesting, odd connections like, well, how many sons does Noah have? He's got three sons. How many named sons do we have of Adam? Also three. Mm -hmm. uh, in each case, we have one that commits a grievous sin and ends up with a curse, uh, one on him and the other, the curse is given by Noah to the son. So you get these wild parallels that are super interesting to let us know that the whole world was destroyed and has to be done over again. So in the whole discussion of historical Adam, Noah and the flood are often sidelined, mostly because theologians don't know what to do with it. Noah is integrated very strongly in New Testament theology, as you guys know. Mm -hmm. No, you know, Jesus speaks about Noah and what it's going to be like in the end times. Peter extensively discusses this. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people have avoided dealing with the topic of the flood or just saying, well, it could have been local without understanding the implications of what they're saying. Right. Because Peter ties the flood as one of the evidences of God's universal judgment. He yeah, created the, the world and out that of the water. next one's coming. That's right. right. So he created the world out of water. He judged the world with the same waters. Those were the waters of creation, the waters of the seas. And so we know that because God is capable and has, in fact, done universal judgment on all the world, that the next one is sure. God's promised it. If, if I can rabbit trail just for a little bit off of this, um, we've talked about this on the podcast, um, and I, I always Couple get a little loud later. when we talk about it. But, <laughs> you know, the Apostle Peter gave us a prophecy that in the last days, there are going to be people that rejected the belief that God was coming back to judge the earth, reject the gospel and scoff, you know, scoffers will come with scoffing, you yeah. know, the great Hebraism there. But, <laughs> uh, and, but he says specifically, they're going to deny the flood and they're going to say everything has continued exactly the same since the very beginning of history. You know, you've interacted with some of these, and I'm speaking of Christians now, does, you'd feel like that would, should cause you to lose sleep a little bit over that mm -hmm. when you're to, to just kind of dismiss the flood or to say, well, these guys have got some good points. It, I can't get over, and I guess I'm probably a, I, certainly a pastor and theologian first here, but it's like if, it's like we were warned. This is exactly <laughs> what they're going to say, yeah. and here's what they're going to be like, and here's what they're going to deny. And then it it comes along, and we're we're in this game to see, 
Well, how much do we have to accept really? And, and still, I, this, I, it's kind of a silly question, I think, but does that ever come up when you, when you talk with these people? It, it does. Yeah. And I think, I think you're very right to look at this and you're like, I love the way you put it. Like we've been warned. <laughs> this is yeah. right in scripture. Like this is a problem. And when Peter is writing, right, it is a problem for the people that he's writing to. These are Jewish believers in Jesus who are being responded to by other Jews who know the scripture. And Peter's mm-hmm. saying they're they're avoiding the scriptures, right? They're avoiding the, the actual points of commonality and making ridiculous arguments that everything's always been the same. Everybody dies, nobody comes back. Mm-hmm. And he's like, things haven't always been the same. You know, they don't always yeah. follow that pattern. Mm-hmm. So you're right. We have been warned. Um, and I think with a, a lot of these folks, as you alluded to kind of like this, this, um, minimalist approach. And one of the things that I actually say in my rejoinder to the, the argument, so we each wrote our, our chapters, then we have a chance to respond to everybody else. And then we make a, a final reply. And in my response to, um, William Lane Craig's chapter, I make mention of the fact that, you know, he's trying to go with this, what are our minimal commitments argument? And I said, that's fine as far as it goes, except that in the end, the Bible never calls us to minimal commitments. It calls calls us to maximal engagement. Mm -hmm. So minimal commitments are a great way to get started, maybe, but I'm not even sure that that's the case. You know, you might have to establish some minimal things. I mean, it's, certainly it's a minimal thing that in order to know God and to love him, you must come through Jesus Christ. That's a minimal commitment. But that's not where our philosophical arguments end. No. Um, that that should be the first paragraph of a very long book. Um, and so I, my approach has always been, I want to find out, I want to find it. I want to, I want to know it all, right? <laughs> I, I know yeah. I won't. Yeah. Um, but I want to know it all. I want to know what God, you know, really did in the history of the world. I want his his word to illuminate and guide my investigations so that hopefully I'm on the right path. And if we ignore things like the flood and decide that the world has always operated basically the way that we see it operating right now, and God said that's not the case, then that's that's a massive red flag. I can't do that. Um, I've got to approach geology. I've got to approach geology from a standpoint where I recognize that God has done unusual and um, uh, how would I put it? Um, something that I can't replicate. Something right. that can't be replicated in the world at all right now. And, and praise God, we can't. Right? <laughs> we don't want to go through the flood again. <laughs> only eight people made it, and only because God decided that He would remember the promise. To Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with that written in scripture, it gives me some guidelines. It helps me to think way outside of the box geologically about how big things can be. Um, can I think about whole swaths of the continents underwater at one time mm-hmm. with raging waters over top of that? What would that do? What would that make geologically? Um, if I go to the rocks, do I see any evidence that there is some sort of catastrophe involved, that there is some sort of mass deposition of of sedimentary rocks with lots of fossils in it. And and not just saying that, you know, every rock that has fossils in it was formed during the flood. That's not, that's not the case either. There are lots of fossils, I think, that were formed after the flood was done. 
in the interim between the end of the flood and the ultimate dispersal of people. In creationism, we refer to this as the post-flood period. Um, so while it might be you know, quick to say that there are you know, all sorts of animals buried everywhere underwater and therefore the flood, we actually have to be more careful about that. We, we've got to be able to you know, literally dig deeper as geologists into the rocks to find out, is this a rock unit that was laid down during the flood or is this one that was laid down after the flood or before the flood? I, I might not know. And as my PhD advisor, David Fiskowski said when I was talking about some secular research that I was doing about whether this was the case or that was the case, his, his response was, and either answer is interesting. And I thought that was really illuminating about his mind as a scientist. He certainly had a perspective about what he thought we were going to find when, when I was doing my investigations. But he also was of the opinion that if it turned out to be something else, that was interesting too. Right. And I want to approach creation science in the same sort of way. I want to approach it with an open set of eyes, uh, a mind that is pliable both to the, the data from the world outside and to the data from scripture itself. And let those two guide me into thinking how do we make sense of this whole world? But you know, so, so let me ask you as we as we talk about yeah. Adam and and then I want to talk about dinosaurs for a minute here. But uh, <laughs> uh, what 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 uh, what scientific evidence would you bring in that conversation then? So if we're having this, you know, because if someone is going to come and say, well, I don't believe that. Uh, that Adam was a real person according to the Bible. Usually, at some, they'll often start out and say, that, you know, the the genre of scripture or the you know the language doesn't have to be this. And they'll, mm -hmm. but then sooner or later, there's going to be a, a paragraph or a footnote where they go and and I mean, come on, guys, science has already kind of shown us this isn't it anyway. <laughs> and um, so, right, yeah. how do you respond to to that that yeah, argument? So, We're talking about a historical Adam. Yeah, if I'm talking to another uh, Christian, if I'm talking to a believer then, you know, certain, especially if the believer I'm talking to thinks that the Bible is inerrant. So, you know, in the book, we've got Kenton Sparks, who says the Bible is not errant, uh, not inerrant. It's very errant in his view. Okay. He and I are going to have to have a different sort of conversation than I'm going to have with an inerrantist. And, and I'll have a, a different sort of conversation, you know, with my agnostic advisor. So, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, this will be different. But if I'm talking to somebody, you know, who's writing one of the commentaries or, you know, writing a book and they're, they're, they're a believer, and eventually they're like, okay, and come on, genetics has proven that we, you know, that we came from apes. Uh, anthropology has proven that, you know, we're not the only species out there. Uh, I would say, okay, yeah, let's take a look at the genetics and let's take a look at the anthropology. The second part of my chapter was really looking actually at the anthropology issue. And is there a way for us to know who is and who isn't part of the ancestry of Adam based on what they do? You know, in part based on what they look like and their skeletons, but also do we have any evidence of humanity in these different fossil groups. So Neanderthals, for example, they they show a lot of evidence of being human. Uh, they made controlled fire and they had little hearts. They cooked their food all the time. They made jewelry uh, and wore necklaces with eagle talons on them or uh, shells that they had little bore holes through them so they could lace them together. Uh, they had clothing. We even, uh, I say we, but scientific community saw a report just uh, two years ago of twine that they had made um, and so you're like, okay, these are smart folks. Um, and, you know, the structures inside caves that we don't even know what they were, but they were breaking stalactites and stalagmites in this like deep pitch black section of a cave and putting them in these like big circular structures. What were they doing? Don't know. Was it a religious service? Maybe. Were these a couple of guys going down there to smoke some weird weed that they found? We don't know that either. It could be <laughs> anything. Um, 
And, and one of my creationist friends said that to great laughter in the room. I was like, okay, we're <laughs> expecting that. But like, we don't know what they were doing down there, but they were definitely doing something there. This, this was a place where there was some kind of ritual activity. They kept coming back to this cave and doing something. Okay. So it looks like Neanderthals are humans. This is what convinced William Lane Craig that he's got to put Adam deep, deep in the past. He looks at the Neanderthals and says, they show every evidence imaginable of being human. They have the same type of things that Homo sapiens is doing. So their ancestor must be, you know, Adam's got to be down there. And so in, in my response to William Craig, I, I said, actually, we, this is a point where we agree. We both agree that the Neanderthals show excellent evidence of being human. And we both think that the ancestor lies deeper in the past, although I'm not putting it hundreds of thousands of years in the past, I'm actually putting all of that in the post-flood world, that the, the evidence of Homo erectus and the Neanderthals, ancient Homo sapiens, and a bunch of others out there is all actually evidence of activity that was happening after Noah got off the boat. And I think that we've got a great bit of evidence that a variety of these things that we call different species of, of hominins are actually human beings that are descended from Noah's family. And um, most young earth creationists believe that. They think that Neanderthals are humans. They think that Homo erectus is human. And so the question then is, well, where do they fit in biblical history? We all think that it's post-flood. Um, are these different physical forms aberrant from us? Or was there a more ancient form that Noah looked like? And we are actually the more recent weird form. You, know, you look at all the others, nobody has a big, huge, tall forehead like we do. And, you know, like, would Adam have looked at us and they're like, dude, what's with your head? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know, those are the sorts of, of things that I would bring up. I would show them that there's evidence for humanity in all of these things. Evidence also of sin. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in my book, in, in my book chapter, is that there is evidence of murder and cannibalism. Um, all throughout the paleoanthropological record. And it's gruesome stuff. I mean, the, the papers are not fun to read. They're very dry. They're very professional, but you read it and you're like, ew. Um, you know, here <laughs> yeah. you've got this group that was in a cave in Spain um, called Homo antecessor. And the bones that we have are actually of the victims. And almost all of the victims are teenagers to small children. And they were being snatched and cannibalized by a band of wicked people preferentially going after the small and the weak, right? Mm -hmm. This is what you do. And, and butchered um, and flesh cut open and nibble marks on bone. I mean, it's, it's nasty stuff. And the bones of the homo antecessor are processed in the exact same ways that the bones of other non-human species are in there. So they, these are people that caught all kinds of game and just considered people another thing on the menu. It wasn't a desperation cannibalism like, you know, they're locked on an island and it goes all south. Right. Rather, this was preferential. They did this because they wanted to. So you get something like that and you say, well, where does evil come? You know, where does evil come from? If it doesn't come from Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden, then it actually ends up having to be built into creation itself. That God mm -hmm. created these people. And at some point in time, like you mentioned with C.S. Lewis, decides okay, now you're human, now you're in my image, and now these behaviors that were actually part of how I built you right. are wrong. And, and we don't know why. Why is cannibalism for this group wrong, but not the people right. that lived two months before them? And, and that is a very arbitrary way of approaching. It doesn't have any, uh, that, that I think impinges upon the nature of God himself and asks so, questions of his consistency. So all these different, groups that you hear about, you know, Homo erectus, Neanderthal, et cetera. Um, 
they're often, at least in the popular understanding and how I would know about it is put out as like, well, you know, first there was this kind of person and then it was this, and it was all part of like, you know, links in the chain mm. um, making its way to what we have today. Um, but, you know, what, what you're saying is if you look at the way they lived, you look at, you know, how they had art and they had, you know, technology of a sort and all that. And um, they, that these were just people and they would have looked different and maybe had different appearance and different shapes. But, uh, you know, there, we have that even today where you have different uh, identifiable ethnic groups, for example, that are all still human, but mm-hmm. there's just differences in how, uh, you know, you can look at them and say, okay, this was a, you know, a Caucasian man that we found by, you know, looking at his, his remains, for example, uh, that this is just extended over time that this is really the, the same kind of thing. Is that the right and how I understand that? Yeah. Um, the, the skeletal materials of these different groups of Neanderthals, Erectus, um, uh, Antecessor, Heidelbergens, all these different things, there's about a, a dozen within Homo, and maybe not all of them are valid, but you know, there's, there's a variety. There's a consistency to them. So when I, when I talk to students about Neanderthals, um, there is a very consistent and, and variable but variable within boundaries, um, physical morphology that they have. And it's different from us. Now, one thing that we do know is that we were able to interbreed with them. Uh, All of us on this podcast right now uh, have uh, Neanderthal genes in us. Somewhere around 1% to 2% of our genome comes from the Neanderthals. Um, I knew it, Zach. Look at you. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but but hey, maybe Zach can, uh, you know, he can make some really good twine because of this. Uh, (laughs) So- you know, here we've got people who are kind of different tribes or groups is more of how I kind of think of it. They definitely have their own physical look to them. But when they came in contact with Homo sapiens, our group, people saw people and decided to have kids with people. Uh, and, and the consistency and the amount of mating that had to have happened is high enough that you look at it and say, well, this isn't because of occasional random aggress, you know, aggression, rape or something like that. No, this this seems like no. Every once in a while, th- we definitely, you know, traded out spouses, and you know, we we married people from them, and they married in from people from us, and there were alliances and groups just like there were in ancient times with other tribes of Homo sapiens. So, looking at that, you kind of go, okay, people met people and had kids with people. At a certain point, you have to say, this is the, we're still talking about people and men as the way the Bible describes them. And these differences are not so important. This is something that's come up in some of my reading a little bit on this is there's, and I just wanted to check this with you because there was an understanding, I guess, at one point as creationists were interacting with all this stuff about early, you know, so-called early man or, Mm -hmm. or anthropological development that I was, I have come across a lot of reading where people are arguing that basically the way that we chose to interpret some of this, these findings, was really severely colored by the fact that a lot of these discoveries were made in the 1800s and early 1900s when there was like really awful racially tinged motivation you were talking about like the lenses that you interpret the data with right and we're talking my understanding is that some of these early paleontologists and anthropologists are people that believe in like a progressively evolutionary chain within homo sapiens that ends with caucasian people like really mm-hmm. awful icky stuff, right? And so do, do, in your understanding, does that color any of this at all? Like, because w- what you're describing to me is, look, you're, you're laying this false layer over the findings and saying that these people must be some primitive stage of person 
when really that's an assumption you're bringing to the table. And if you just look at the findings, they're people that they have a different bone structure that clearly would have been able to interbreed with, with what we see as normal. Do, do you think that that has anything to do with it, that a lot of these discoveries were made at a time where there was a lot of, so, you know, when talk about pseudoscience, like so-called mm -hmm. science, you know, phrenology was a huge part of what people thought was important science at the time. Does that have anything to do with why these are interpreted that way? I think you're right, Zachary. Um, certainly, when we take a look at the history of the interpretation of the Neanderthals and Homo erectus, because both of those were found initially in the 1800s, um, Neanderthals first in the 1870s, and then the first Homo erectus in 1897. Um, the first Neanderthals were considered to be, you know, uh, stooped over and, you know, dragging clubs around and hair all over their body and no clothes right. and things like that. And that's really kind of shocking because one of the earliest Neanderthal discoveries is La Chapelle aux Saints in France. And at La Chapelle aux Saints, uh, this was someone who was actually buried. Uh, they, the mm. cave sediments were excavated. The body was laid down and covered up. And people found this and they're like, okay, well, we found this Neanderthal skeleton. It kind of looks like a burial. But because people had a preconceived notion that they had to be significantly you know, below us cognitively, that they've got to be some link between us and our primitive ancestors. That was, you know, the the good evidence there was really overlooked. And it would take, you know, a hundred years really before Neanderthals would start being over a hundred years before Neanderthals would start being looked at as being cognitively equivalent to Homo sapiens. How could mm -hmm. they be? They're extinct, right? And the only reason that something goes yeah. extinct is it's not good enough. Right. And, and that was a common perspective, not only in hominin and human origin sort of stuff, but also applied to the fossil record generally. People looked at dinosaurs and thought, well, they they couldn't compete with mammals. And, uh, you know, you guys, right. you know, didn't grow up hearing that kind of argument all that much because by the time you guys were growing up, the argument was more the dinosaurs died out because a giant asteroid right. happened and happened to take them out. The mammals were lucky. Dinosaurs were unlucky. But you go back to the 1970s, the 60s and before that, and it's all about, well, the dinosaurs were primitive, cold-blooded lizards and the mammals were on the rise and they were better. Well, it turns out dinosaurs are metabolically as active as most mammals are. So, you know, it's like, you know, you lose this sort of thing as the science progresses. And have you've yes. been to, so real quick, have you been to the Natural History Museum in DC where they oh, yes. have that little golden rat? Yes. And it's like, go meet your oldest ancestor. It's just the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> That but is a it, very bizarre. Everybody I've ever been, even when they're, I assume they're not all believers or, or certainly creationists, just sit there like laughing. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, but yeah, yeah that, it's great, a very strange thing. Great grandma Morgie, as uh, one of the videos around the corner That's talks about that. Uh, yes. <laughs> an animal called Morganucodon. And uh, in the rock record, this is one of the very first mammal, you know, putatively mammal creatures in the fossil record. Um, and it's not small. I mean, even the, the statuette that's there is um, a couple of times larger than real life, uh, because in real life, this thing is only about the size of a large rat. Uh, but it's not a rat it, and it's not a, a regular mammal as we see it. it. It's a different sort of thing altogether. Its whole group is, you know, died out during the flood. But yeah, they, they built a shrine uh, to yeah, this little, thing. Little idol. These, <laughs> and, and it's strange. I remember it because I remember when the, when the um, exhibit first opened around 2005 or so when the or 2006 somewhere around there and so you've got these four pillars um that surround the the little shrine in the middle so you've got a pedestal it's about three foot tall mm -hmm. it's illuminated and this bronzed morganucodon is sitting on it the panels are about 
15 feet tall uh, on each of the four sides of the pillar. So you have to kind of come in from the- It's almost like you're going into a room when you walk in. It is. And I've I've sat back and I watched people because we would take our creations, our advanced creation studies class up to the Smithsonian every year. And uh, after a while, you know, I've seen all the things I want to see. I'm sitting there and I'm just watching as people interact with this exhibit. And I'll never forget when one woman came in with her probably about four-year-old kid. Now, this is a four-year-old kid that's at the Natural History Museum, and he's a little spazoid. I mean, he's like, oh, John, go look at that. I haven't seen this thing. And like, he's just, he's nuts, which is fine. Is it the Natural History Museum? This mm-hmm. is awesome. So I'm kind of chuckling as this kid comes in, and he's just all over the place. And when, they, when her mom drags him into this thing, she shushes him. She has not shushed him in like 80 yards, (laughs) but she shushes him and then reads the plaque and says, this is your oldest ancestor, right? And the little kid looks at the thing and he pets, pets little Morgie. And then he wanders off. And then, you know, a few feet later, he starts off on his thing again. But that's when I saw it and went, sure enough, right? This is ancestor worship. It's it's reverence Mm. almost. It is. And, And the designer of that, of that exhibit wanted people to have a reverence for the power of evolution and the power of our ancient ancestry. And if you look at the four panels that are around this, they've got like a DNA double helix. They've got all these stencils of different mammals on it. And there's one phrase on each one of them. And it's the same one. It says from one ancestor, many mammals. You can tell I've been there a few times, but. Oh, I've been there so many times. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like an altarpiece, like a triptych where you have like these different, you know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. religious. It's intentionally religious. Yeah. You're exactly right, Zachary. And so what happens is that somebody looks at that and they get curious, right? Because they read one panel and they look at the other panel to see if it says something different. And so four times you speak a mantra, a religious mantra to yourself from one ancestor, many mammals, right? And this is why mom comes in, right? The illumination from the top, the illumination below. It's all this. It's a holy place. It's a shrine to our ancestor. She shushes this little kid. And says, this is our oldest answer. She says exactly what she's supposed to. They've been conditioned. And, you know, I, I mean, in one sense, kudos to the Natural History Museum for creating a religious experience. I just wish that it would be oriented towards the Lord God Almighty, right? Yes. It, where instead of doing what Romans 1 tells us, that, you know, throwing uh, away what we know, we instead worship the creation and we make images of the creeping things. Yeah. And it becomes right? shameful. Is like, pulling- we become like them as we... Exactly. Worship these things. There's a, there's a um, it's in one of the chapters in the, one of the books I wrote, but I've also given the as a sermon several times about um, kind of how you mentioned at the beginning. Just I'll just shorthand call it the the Rick and Morty crowd. That is just the you know this is the universe. I'm smart enough to realize what the universe is, and because of that, I'm incredibly depressed, and life means nothing. Mm. And because when that is your religion, even it's not like officially, but you know, you came from rats. So what are you really? That sinks into a person. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that same thing when you go to India, you go to Nepal and these places with Hindu culture, which is you are, it sounds real nice when you say it in Hollywood, like we're all one and we're all connected. But what that the poor person over there hears is you're no better than the, that rat or the dirt on the back of that rat because you're, you know, it's all one thing. And uh, this is, I mean, if you want to talk about why the doctrine of Adam is important, I mean, to be created in the image of God is I mean that that's the foundation of how we understand what people are, and right. it also affects your doctrine of the atonement and and so many other things. I, I hate that we're starting to run short on time here, but I do not want to let you go without talking about dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, you already hit on that a little bit. And um, you know, I I was that kid just like everybody else who had right. all the all the Jurassic Park toys and everything. And excellent. Um, 
Yeah. yeah so I, that, that makes me that that brings gladness to my soul. Now, yeah. so here's a I, here's a, sh- a short question before I ask my real one. This is but uh, how much do you think Jurassic Park and the popular understanding of what a dinosaur looked like has has held back some of uh, the changes that have been discovered in, in terms of what dinosaurs might have looked like? Oh, quite a lot. Um, that's not yeah. what a T-Rex looks like. <laughs> I've seen it on TV. Now, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, let me, let me give credit where credit is due. Uh, the, you know, Steven Spielberg made an astonishingly good movie. I was there. That was the first time I ever went to a movie on opening night. I was, um, 16 or 17. Oh, you were perfect to see that. And, man. and right, I'd read the book the, the year before or two years before, uh, I think it was just a year before because Crichton had written this book. It was amazing. I read it to my kids last year. And it still is an an amazingly good book. It's a yeah, I, I read read. It. It's it's much more uh yeah, much more um depressing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Than than the movie is. Human sure. humanity is just we're we're a bunch of screw ups. Um, yep. that, it's all we we're ever going do. to break this whole miracle of life is kind of his Yep. So yep, we will. Ian Malcolm yeah. is just correct all the way through. It's depressing, mm-hmm. but he's right. Um but the movie was outstanding, and for when it was produced and made in 1993 um it nothing came close to depicting dinosaurs as accurately um as as what we knew you know there's a couple little nitpick things that i look at and go yeah you know you shouldn't have done that you know the uh the big long neck sauropod that they get to feed with branches up when they're up in the tree and it's chewing like a cow well dinosaurs can't chew that way they can only move their mouths with a simple hinge pretty much straight up and down so they don't chew um (laughs) And uh, there's a little bit of a backwards motion. So if there's a paleontologist listening, they're like, uh, does he know? Yeah, yeah, I know. There's, a more <laughs> there's always it. one. There's always a little <laughs> bit more to it. But nonetheless, I mean, the the raptors were outstanding. T-Rex was really good. Um, although it did kind of like get bigger and smaller throughout the movie. Like a couple of times you're like, wait a minute, that's it, really, really big. Another how, did like, it, how did it fit into this building for the end of the, that's right. for the, end of the that's movie? Right. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I mean- being there on opening night and when that first scene, when they're in the Jeeps and they roll up and they see uh-huh. the, the sauropods, the, the Brachiosaurus, the audience just gasped. I mean, audibly, the audience across the board just gasped. We had never seen anything like this before. Prior to that, it was all, you know, uh, stop motion animation, mm-hmm. which was great. I was a huge stop motion animation geek. I, I recorded everything, all the Harry Hausen movies, all, mm-hmm. all the stuff that People wish they could have been Harry, Harry Hausen, but weren't as good. <laughs> I watched all of that stuff. This was such a game changer. And then what you end up with is just endless spinoffs. So like everybody's Raptor looks like the Jurassic Park Raptor. Everybody's T-Rex looks like Jurassic Park's T-Rex. And they're good. They're, they're quite good. Um, but now we know a, a good bit more. Uh, one of the, I'll give you one thing that is, uh, is an obvious mistake if you're a paleontologist, you can see, and that is the way that the raptors hold their hands. And they kind of hold them out in front of them, kind of limp-wristed sort of looking, either, and you know, curled mm-hmm. forward. Raptors didn't hold their hands that way. Their, their hands actually faced each other. So they would clap, if you will. They could swivel their wrist downward so their hands could still be down, but the palms were facing one another rather than palms down. Mm-hmm. So when they were running, it was tuck them in and, and they were running with, with hands facing kind of forward-ish uh, rather than palms down. But right. now there's, you know, since since the late 1990s, feathery material started being found on dinosaurs. And so the one thing that Jurassic Park did really lag was those discoveries. They didn't want to put feathers on the, on the dinosaurs, 
partly I think because I know Spielberg had said he didn't want, he didn't think that he could animate them well enough and that they'd look weird and people wouldn't like, you know, basically a, a you know, big bird chasing people around. <laughs> uh, that was, that would be a very different kind of movie, right? Nobody would yeah. like a T-Rex that looks like big bird. And I, hi, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, no, so, so- let me, uh, I, I'm very interested in this subject uh, because, you know, not as a non-expert, certainly, but, um, you know, for a long time, what we heard was, well, these reptilian dinosaurs are, you know, they eventually turned into birds and that's why the skeletal structure is, uh, you know, so close and so similar and everything. But as we discover uh, feather and material and things like that, it is it seems like these things might have just been, at least in some cases, just birds, just of, of a different sort than we have this, something closer to maybe like a cassowary or an ostrich or something mm-hmm. like that. Is that you, you're the expert? So I'm asking you, is that? Yeah, fair good to, question. Yeah. Well, actually, um, so I mentioned the International Conference on Creationism uh, a little while back. I had the opportunity to uh, do a, a workshop, uh, a big audience participation sort of thing with uh, Dr. Matt McLean. He's a dinosaur paleontologist and teaches at the Masters University in, in California. And uh, he and I are both paleontologists. And uh, we wanted to talk to the broader creation community about the evidence for feathers on dinosaurs. And so we had this two hour long workshop to go over uh, how do we identify dinosaurs versus non-dinosaurs? You know, why do we call, you know, this thing a dinosaur, but this other thing a mosasaur? How come the mosasaurs that are swimming aren't dinosaurs? Aren't they both lizards? That's a question and- that I've had before is, is at one point, at what point does the, does it just kind of start to disappear? Yeah. So it, it all have. goes down to the skeleton. Unsurprising in paleontology when all you have is, you know, teeth and bones and <laughs> shells and stuff. Um, but we we identified dinosaurs on the basis of certain skeletal features that they have, whereas the mosasaurs are actually a group of lizards. So dinosaurs are not in the lizard group at all, even though their name means terrible lizard or reptile. Even from the very beginning, everybody knew that they weren't regular lizards. The very first uh, illustrations and models of dinosaurs had them standing straight up on their legs, right? Their legs were underneath their body like mammals. So from the very first dinosaurs, we knew that these weren't like regular lizards. And it would take a long time to figure out more about what they were. We only get bits and pieces and scraps. So the dinosaurs are in a bigger group of what we call archosaurs. Uh, living archosaurs include crocodiles and birds, um, skeletally. Uh, so even though birds are birds and Crocodiles and alligators are reptiles. Um, anatomically, they're actually more similar to each other than the crocodile is, say, to a lizard. Got more skeletal things in common. Dinosaurs are in that group as well, plus a bunch of other things that you never hear about because they're they're not interesting enough to the populace to put in a movie. Um, <laughs> I think they would be, but nobody. If it doesn't say the word dinosaur, right. nobody puts it in Hollywood, yeah. um, except for a couple in Jurassic Park Six. Uh, they they finally put a few things that weren't dinosaurs. They're like, wow, that's cool. A uh, few things for us. That, that's the one that I didn't get around to seeing. So I, I can't speak for that one. I've heard they're, they kind of declined in quality as time went on. <laughs> there are two <laughs> plots and both of them aren't good. And um, <laughs> But the, the dinosaurs in that movie are phenomenal. Oh my yeah. goodness. They're so good. They're the best that they've ever done. So, so um, let me ask then. So not, I mean, as, as we discover these things about, you know, um, dinosaurs you know might have had 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 feathers or some of them do you know and the category mm-hmm. issues can get a little confused and i at the end i'll let you uh tell us maybe where we can find more about these things in detail um but i i understand there's been some pushback from other other creationists and i, I think answers in genesis particularly 
uh, to the thought that dinosaurs might have had feathers. I don't really see where the dog in the in, in the where our dog in that fight is. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you help me kind of understand where the uh, the conflict has come? Because uh, I think mo- more people are going to be familiar with AIG and Ken Ham, of course, who we, sure. we respect very much. But um, w- just speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and and I'll, I'll say from the very get go, I've worked with Answers in Genesis in the past. I, I hold their organization in high regard. I've shared the stage with Ken Ham um, here in Lynchburg and uh, even spoken to him and his staff about this topic at the Creation Museum back in 2014. And um, I think one of the things that has complicated the issue is that um, when the first dinosaur bird arguments were coming out in the 1980s and 90s, um, there were no dinosaurs that had feathers at the time. And so whether a dinosaur had feathers or not became part of the evidence about whether or not dinosaurs evolved into birds. Right. Uh, and okay. those are actually two separate questions. One is a question of anatomy and the uh, and skeletal, you know, fossilization. And the other one is a question of ancestry. Now, for my evolutionary colleagues, they think that those both join together perfectly because evolution is supposed to be evidenced through the fossils. And one thing that I, I want to get us straight on is we talk about dinosaurs, we talk about birds. But one of the things to remember is that dinosaur is not a kind of animal. It's not a biblical kind. Hmm. And neither is bird. Bird is not a kind, right? You mentioned mm-hmm. cassowaries and cassowaries are a very different type of bird than a sparrow. And nice. I don't expect yeah. that those actually shared any ancestry at all. Because when God talks about having created the flying creatures, according to their various kinds, mm-hmm. you know, the ostrich is one kind and the eagles are a different kind. Yeah. It's, right. it's when, know. for example, when you get into uh, the cleanliness laws in the book of, mm-hmm. of Leviticus and so on, mm-hmm. uh, the categories are, are certainly not uh, our normal scientific categories, you know, kingdom phylum class order. Uh, it's yeah. it's much different. And so when you can start to read in our system into, you know, how the Bible is, it's kind of like if it flies, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a bird of the air. You know, right. if it's, if it skitters on the ground, it's a creeping thing. And uh, yeah. so if it's big and you can't tame it, it's a beast of the field. Right. Yeah. So whereas earth. we're going to look at things much more closely and, and uh, you know, well, this is technically, you know, Every now and then you'll hear something, well, they, you know, even somebody like saying, well, a whale is technically a mammal. It's like, okay, we understand that, but it's also a big swimming thing that lives in the ocean. And, right. you know, so, um, so yeah, yeah, that's, I just wanted to clarify that point for you. So that, that's, that's absolutely correct. The Bible provides us with what we would call a folk taxonomy. It's not trying to, to systematically organize the world according to uh, a, a set parameters like we do in science. It's trying to say, these are the things that you can eat. These are the things that you can't. And even the word kind, which is used both in Genesis 1 and then later on in the uh, in the uh, dietary laws, the Hebrew word for kind is tremendously plastic. It's just like our English word for kind. So I can be talking about kinds of birds and I can be talking about kinds of chickens. And right. I don't think that God created every kind of chicken. Pretty sure that's all one <laughs> part of a created right. kind. But when you get to the dietary laws, you see specific, like, I mean, what we would consider species identified as this is what you can't eat and you can't eat that one or that one or that one. I'm going to like, there's three vultures. You can't have that kind, that kind, or that kind. It's perfectly fine for the Bible to do that, to use that word so plastically. Defining fish as as scales and fins. If it has scales and fins, you can eat it. If not, leave it alone. Even even in the Western world, it wasn't until Carl Linné, he was the guy who gave us our genus and species names and then started developing that kingdom phylum system that you mentioned. Carl Linnae wrote systematic, um, uh, sorry, um, Systema Naturae, so the systemization of nature. Um, and it wasn't until his 10th edition, 
which was the real big one. That, that was like massive. It was the 10th edition where he actually moved whales out of fish and identified oh. as mammals. So we're talking like 1802, I think, or somewhere around there, early 1800s, mammals became, uh, whales became mammals. Why? <laughs> because he knew that there was evidence of uh, their ear bones. He knew that they suckled their young with milk, uh, that they were warm. It seemed that they were warm blooded animals. It's like, well, that, you know, that was good enough for him. So we rec- uh, so we now recognize that calling whales fish is appropriate if you're just talking about all the stuff that's out in the ocean. We still talk about eating shellfish. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, have you looked at an oyster? It's <laughs> not fish. <laughs> that's a, that's a Jim Gaffigan called it a rock with a snot in it. That's right. <laughs> so uh, sorry to, to, just for time to, to, to bring it back. So, yeah. uh, so what you're trying to get at, I, I think is that there, we shouldn't be threatened by this discovery as, as creationists because mm-hmm. the discovery of that some of these critters had feathers does not necessitate that they evolved from one thing to the other, but that simply it is a, a different kind of thing that God made and that there is room for some of these discoveries that without having to, to push back against that specific issue. Mm. Precisely right. Dinosaurs can have feathers, or at least some types of dinosaurs can have feathers. And that doesn't mean that birds evolved from dinosaurs. It simply means that some dinosaurs share more anatomical similarities with birds than others do. Like a triceratops with its horns on its head doesn't share a lot of physical characteristic with birds. It's Mm. got, you know, it walks on four legs. It's a big rhinoceros shaped kind of thing. And uh, we don't have any evidence that, um, that it had feathers on it. Um, one of its one of its type might have some fibers coming off of its tail. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are some plant eating dinosaurs, and there are some a lot of meat eating dinosaurs where we have great evidence of fuzz and fluff and downy sorts of materials, and even flight capable feathers. There's a couple of dinosaurs that did fly, and biblically, um, those would go in a category of the oaf in Genesis mm-hmm. chapter one, the flying mm-hmm. things. And is it okay to have some dinosaurs that are created on day five and some created on day six? Well, absolutely, because it's okay for some mammals to be created on day five, like the whales, and other mammals like the elephant that are created on day six, and other mammals that are created on day five, like bats and aardvarks that are made on day six. So mammals, likewise, right? It's not a kind. It's a big category that we have created to Mm. systematize what God has made. And and that was Linnae's whole whole approach in life. It was quipped of him, God creates, Linnae organizes. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, uh, and so, yeah, dinosaurs can have feathers. And you know, there's some great work by uh, my colleague, Dr. Matt McLean. He and I have a paper that should be coming out in September um, through Answers Research Journal, through Answers in Genesis's uh, peer-reviewed technical journal, uh, responding to some of these arguments. And one of their scientists who disagrees with us, she's going to have a chance for a rejoinder. So, you know, a good example of how scientists interact with one another over these different types of topics. Well, listen, man, there... <laughs> I've, I'm having a great time and I, I hate that I've got to start wrapping this up now. I, I didn't get to ask you about uh, shrink wrapping related to di- dinosaurs, which is, I have so much fun thinking about that. I had some theological things I wanted to get into, um, but uh, I think we've gotten quite a bit to, to get into here. And Zach, I'll just, I'll leave you. Is there any, any final comments you want to make or, or questions to ask before we let Dr. Ross go? No, I just, I like, I'll say one really short thing and then ask you for one really short answer. My, my, when I hear you talk about some of this stuff, I get the sense because I grew up and Tyler and I've talked about this on the podcast. I grew up 
like mainlining this stuff. This was, I didn't have a lot of hobbies as a kid. This was one of my <laughs> hobbies, right? And so but just getting into it in that era, and I think of it as like an era in like the 90s and early 2000s where Antigen Genesis, ICR, it was kind of like this second or third generation wave of people that mm -hmm. were inheriting this from some of the older uh, gentlemen that are now with the Lord. And at that time, a lot of this to me, as I was reading it, I was very excited, but it was always in theory. It was, okay, this is, this is one way to organize the data, but we have this other theory about how you could organize the data and we still need to do the work behind that. When I'm hearing you talk about it, there just seems to me to be a lot more maturity behind how believers in the scientific community are approaching this now. And I guess by maturity, I mean like we just talked with Dr. Baumgartner where he's, he's talking about a model that he's running on the Cray supercomputer that is demonstrating mathematically things that were just kind of posited when I was growing mm -hmm. up reading this stuff. And he's saying, no, look, I, I have the data here. You're talking about, you know, and even, even in the way I've seen Anthony and Genesis talk about this stuff early on, it was very like, it felt very hard line and there was no room to even interact with some of the, the scientific discoveries. And now you'll hear Anthony and Genesis talk about, look, microevolution is no big deal. Let's explain mm -hmm. it to you. Like, it's not a big deal. Here's how it works. But that doesn't mean that rats turned into you. Is that right. your sense that we're, I get the sense that we're kind of advancing to this next level where now we're able to produce scientific answers that have a lot of depth and a lot of rigor. Is that kind of the sense that you're getting as well? You know, I'm really encouraged uh, by hearing you say that uh, because it means that the, the hard work that uh, creation researchers have been doing uh, is starting to, to show evidence and fruit for itself. Um, I think you're right. You know, young earth creationism, you know, had a resurgence, a rebirth, if you will, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, um, and into the 80s. That was kind of that first generation that came through with Henry Morris, Dwayne Gish, and, and others, mm -hmm. and even before them, working off of uh, a lot of uh, Seventh-day Adventist researchers, uh, like Frank Marsh, people that you don't hear about very much, but set the stage for understanding created kinds. Then you have, you know, the, the 80s, uh, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and, you know, the rise of Answers in Genesis, um, as an organization and its rise to promise, the rise of the intelligent design community uh, mm -hmm. during that time. That was a big, big deal. Yeah. And things are things are quieter for young earth creationism now. I think a lot of a lot of those who oppose us feel like we've been you know pushed out to the side and we've been kind of dealt with. Um, but that was also very much the way that it was in the early 90s. And then there was this like resurgence that came back because we had we had some time where we weren't just fighting out in public. But we decided, okay, we got to do some work here. We've really got right. to, you know, do the hard thing. I, I would tell my students this: in one sense, I don't care that evolution is incorrect, evolution writ large, right? The whole big story. I don't really care that that's incorrect because that's not what motivates me as a young Earth creationist to show that somebody else is wrong. If that's what motivates me, um, that's a bad fruit of the spirit. Right? That, that's not the fruit of the spirit. Is you know malice towards all type of thing. Instead, what motivates me as a young earth creationist is trying to figure out what our own story actually is. Because mm -hmm. if, if you're walking out in the woods with a friend and you notice that there's some dilapidated old shack out there and you can see that the windows are busted, the door is off, there's evidence of rats and whatnot, you can talk all day about how bad that, that little shack is. But if there's a storm that opens up over top of your head, you go into it because it's the only place. Young Earth creationists for too long spent their time pointing out the errors and the flaws of evolution, which is important to do. It, it is incorrect. 
but they didn't spend the work and the time early on in really building their own structure. Mm. And part of that is because it's risky to do because somebody can start pointing out that your own shack, um, yeah, the windows look good, but they're actually made of, you know, they're made of plastic. They're not glass and your roof has a whole lot of holes in it and it's not all that good. So you start putting out a model like Dr. Baumgartner has done and others can start to criticize it. So it's risky for him to do that. And I am so glad that he takes the risk because the only way that we're going to advance in our understanding and our knowledge is if people make risky and bold predictions and models and uh, hypotheses and then go out into the data of the world to try and discover if what we've thought, how something works, actually comports with the data, right? Mm -hmm. Is God leading us on the right direction? Because if all I ever do is spend my time telling people that evolution is wrong, in the end, they have no reason to know why creationism is right, because it's not an either or. There's all this spectrum of different perspectives that are out there. And people are trying to say, okay, I can be a Christian with evolution, or maybe an old earth, or I can be an evolutionist who's a pantheist, right? This this doesn't answer them just to say that evolution is wrong. It's like, yeah, well, I, I still believe that there is a spirit being that is orchestrating the whole thing. And that can get you over a lot of hurdles, right? That can get you all sorts of, you know, answers to probabilities. So we have got to do the hard work of showing what creation is really going to look like. And places like the International Conference on Creationism, uh, meetings like uh, the Origins Meeting or Creation Research Society, those are annual meetings that we have, are the places where we get together and and beat on each other a little bit, you know, hopefully in, in uh, you know, in a good spirit. In and good Christian charity. That's right. Um, <laughs> and a, a big old chair fight like WWE. And, uh, yeah. And and if the awesome. Lord uh, if the Lord will bless us, then um, we will see much fruit. Awesome. Well, I would say to those of you that are listening uh, that maybe, uh, as I said, our desire to hold to the scriptures, but just feel like you you don't have the answers to you know you're, you're someone like myself who. I know the Bible real well, and I know what it says, but I also know there's this whole area of expertise that is very intimidating and is held in very high regard in our, our culture. Um, you know, perhaps what, or if you're describing these earlier generations had to do is just kind of say, hold the line because this is not right. But what we're living in now is we've not, we, we don't just say, hold the line, we'll figure it out. We're starting to figure some of these things out. And there mm-hmm. are good answers to these questions. And mm-hmm. introducing you you guys to people like Dr. Ross, Dr. Baumgartner, and others are to, you might not be able to explain all these things or read the technical papers or whatever, but you can know that there are people that have their PhDs in geology and paleontology who still believe the word of God. And that should be enough for you to say, well, I, I don't understand it, but this person I'm fighting with on the internet probably doesn't either. So let's uh, let's take the time to learn and understand it and try to figure these things out. Um, and I've I've like I said, I, I could easily do a part two or three on this one here. But Dr. Ross, thank you so much for coming on yeah. today. This was such it's, a blessing for it's us. It's been delightful. Thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Where can folks find more find out more about you and uh, and maybe look into some of your research? Sure. Uh, well, um, one place to, to find out a little bit about me is to hop over to Cornerstone Educational Supply. Our website is cornerstone-edsupply.com. And uh, I've got a little thing of you know about us, and you'll see some of the different types of uh, talks and, and whatnot that I often give. Find out if I'm, I'm up to anything. Um, let's see, you know, for uh, research and things like that, I can uh, point you guys to uh, a couple of really good resources. Um, one of the best summaries of where modern young earth creation is comes from uh, UK geologist Paul Garner, and he's got a book called uh, The New Creationism. 
Hmm. The New Creationism. It's an excellent uh, volume, very accessible uh, for high school on up. Uh, that's going to be giving you a sense of where creationism is about 10 years ago. The, the book's about 10 years old now, uh, but I know he's working on some new projects uh, with some other people. But that would be a great introduction to more or less kind of where we are uh, at the moment that's fairly current. Um, I also point you to a couple of really great um, YouTube videos and, and uh, podcasts to listen to uh, for people who are careful about young earth creationism, who want to do the hard work of moving the the goal, you know, or moving towards the goal line and not just, you know, trying to stop somebody else from scoring. Uh, that would be Todd's uh, or uh, Todd Wood and Paul Garner's YouTube channel called Let's Talk Creation. Uh, like yours, it's a bit of a long form one, usually about an hour length, but filled with fascinating discussions of theology, physics, geology, biology. Uh, Let's mm -hmm. Talk Creation is, is really good, where a lot of interesting stuff is happening. Um, also, another great short form YouTube uh, video comes from Ken Colson called Creation Unfolding. And uh, Ken, Ken has got a great YouTube channel. He's real good with his animations and his discussions. He's been a college professor. He really knows how to talk to everybody. And so his YouTube videos are typically on your 10, 15 minute. You know, want to learn more about why dinosaurs uh, have feathers? He's got a great like four part series on it. It's really well done and, and fun. Um, and then one, one website to visit uh, that is what I think is one of the most interesting places for young earth creationism right now. It's run by a bunch of young folks who are recent graduates and current college students. And they are smart and sharp. And it's called uh, newcreation.blog. New creation blog. And you will, you will see where the next generation of creationism is coming by visiting that website. It is exciting. Awesome. Um, really great stuff Ooh. out there. So, you know, places that are outside of the box, you know, the big names, you know, go check their websites. Um, but I would say to see where the, where the future of creationism is, check these ones out. This is where the, this is where the real cool stuff is happening. Okay. Great. Well, we, we will link all of that in the description guys. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in, listening to us today. Thank you to Dr. Ross for joining us. And uh, don't forget also, you all can pick up the Difference Makers book, which is still available on our website. And we will see y'all next time. And we will be finishing up our series on creationism next week. Thank you all for listening.